This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. If you are Reformed or on your way to becoming Reformed, you have probably heard or possibly read the Westminster Confession of Faith, perhaps the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a document which young people used to memorize. If you're a little more experienced, you might even know something about the Westminster Larger Catechism. You might not know, however, about the exciting times and circumstances in which these documents were written. Even some scholars don't know exactly what was discussed during the assembly in those years during the 1640s in England when a group of mostly composed of pastors and theologians gathered to try to figure out a way to unify the English church in the midst of a civil war. There is one scholar, however, who does know, and thanks to his work, we all can know, and he is the Reverend Dr. Chad Vindixhorn. He's Chancellor's Professor of Historical Theology and Associate Professor of Church History at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. He's been a pastor, and he's on campus this week doing some ecclesiastical committee work and to speak to our students. Hi, Chad, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Well, we are excited to have you here. And let's start with some biography. How did you become a scholar of the Westminster Standards? I suppose I became a student of the Standards as a young man when I entered a Presbyterian church in my early 20s. They needed someone to teach Sunday school, and that got me attached to the Shorter Catechism. Anything that had questions uh, as short as the opening question of the Shorter Catechism (laughs) compared to the opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism had me hooked. So you were attracted to brevity. I was attracted to brevity and ease, yes. In case the listener is not exactly sure to what you're referring, what is the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Which is a wonderful summary of the Christian faith. And its brevity is perhaps a little misleading because that's a very rich answer. Today, we were just considering Peter Lombard, who has a whole section interacting with St. Augustine on the difference between using things and enjoying them. And you could hear language that was very similar on enjoying God to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Yeah, on Christian teaching, same thing. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. So you are teaching Sunday school, and you come to know the standards. You begin reading the Shorter Catechism, explaining it to people, and that just fired your imagination. What was it about the standards that really captured your imagination? I both liked how clear the plan of salvation was and the organization of the scriptures presented in the catechism. I also liked the way in which scripture texts were appended, and uh, together with my young students, we'd look at the biblical basis for the Reformed doctrines expressed there, and uh, we had a great time. Then when I went to seminary, spent time reading the Westminster Confession of Faith. I was really able to own a statement that was so full, so easy to adapt for preaching and prayer and teaching. Not that I preach the confession or catechisms, but it is good preachable theology. When did the assembly meet? And uh, let's work through some of the background and the setting. So first of all, when did it meet and why and how? Do that in about two minutes. <laughs> so easily done. It met uh, from the 1643 to 1653 in Westminster Abbey in England. England was in the throes of a violent civil war, and there were multiple reasons for that war, political, economic. But one of the causes of the war was religious friction. And to the extent that 
uh, differences in theology and church practice and worship were a cause of tension in the country and thus ultimately of war. To that extent, the Westminster Assembly was supposed to proffer a solution. And so it was charged by the parliament as a kind of think tank of theologians to revise, if necessary, the liturgy doctrinal standards and church polity of the English church. And then when Scots became interested in this reform movement in England, they exported a few delegates as well, a few commissioners. And so it became not just an English, but a, I guess to speak anachronistically, a British endeavor. So the original work of the assembly was actually to revise the English articles. Right. And they actually did work on that for a while. Right. Until the Scots arrived. And of course, that was part of the political situation, military political situation, the alliance made, and here come the Scots, and things begin to change. And the work of the assembly begins to change. Right. So the beginning of the assembly is exclusively English. They do have someone from Ireland. They do have a couple of uh, French-speaking persons from churches in London. But it only becomes international, in a sense, when the Scots arrive. They send a team of four theologians, a kind of uh, Presbyterian SWAT team, um, (laughs) to the Abbey to try and continue directing this late Reformation in England or the conclusion of England's Reformation in a Presbyterian and Reformed direction. And you call them a SWAT team, but these are really significant figures, weighty figures. Yeah, they're as significant as some of the leading English figures at the assembly. I say this tongue-in-cheek. If one reads Scottish accounts of the Westminster Assembly, they do lionize the Scottish participants in ways that may stretch (laughs) the extent of their full contribution in comparison with the English, who are also very significant theologians. And in some recent writings, there has been some pushback saying, well, listen, this was an English assembly, and we should remember that it was predominantly English. Sometimes we describe the assembly or the documents are sometimes described as Presbyterian, but even that's a little too simple because there are at least three different polities represented by the delegates to the assembly. There are Congregationalists, who are on the side of Cromwell against the royalists. There are Presbyterians of a sort, Scottish Presbyterians, English Presbyterians, who are different kinds of Presbyterians. And then there are Episcopalians in the assembly. Right. So taking those two things in turn, in terms of nationality, you're quite right to say we need to remember it's an English assembly. And when I looked at the writings on the assembly, most of it was produced in America and Scotland. And American historians tend to follow a Scottish line of thinking. When you realize it's an English assembly, then there's good cause to study the assembly in England. And so what I did was to go to England and assume that if it's an English assembly, then there's going to be a lot of papers and manuscripts in England, not Scotland. And indeed, that was the case. And then, of course, I'm rambling at this point, but you mentioned there's three different groups of folk at the assembly in terms of their polity or their understanding of church governance. Absolutely right. To be Anglican in the uh, 1640s, in 1642, meant that you're Episcopal. But when the assembly met, that's one of the questions that came up for grabs. You could be Anglican and Presbyterian or Anglican and Congregationalist. That's exactly what the assembly was trying to figure out. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And a lot of the English Presbyterians after the assembly weren't really Presbyterian anymore for a variety of reasons. So that's a complicated story too. Yeah, so Presbyterianism is underground before the assembly. It's illegal. After the assembly in the 1650s, 
Presbyterianism fails as a platform for a national church. And so it becomes more like it is in the free world today. It becomes a choice that you can make. It's an elective decision as to whether you belong to a Presbyterian or a Congregational church. And then in the 1660s, Presbyterianism becomes illegal again. Which makes it a really painful and difficult and ultimately choice to be marginalized from English yeah. life, English society. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's not just painful, awkward, and you know, challenging. It's really hard to be Presbyterian when it's illegal. I mean, people in China can testify to that. You can't meet in groups and so forth. And when the authorities are committed to doing something about it. Quite right. Yes. Yeah. When they wish to clamp down on Presbyterianism, governments have always tended to be able to do that. Who are some of the more significant figures at the assembly? Who are some of the names that someone should know? The best known members of the assembly, well, they're not actually members, they're commissioners to the assembly, are great men like the young George Gillespie, Samuel Rutherford, Alexander Henderson. These are Scottish commissioners to the assembly. Then amongst the English, the man who really runs the assembly is a man named Cornelius Burgess. And uh, Burgess is part of an Oxford minority. The leaders of the assembly are all Oxford men trying to lead a Cambridge majority. He's uh, a guy with his doctorate trying to guide people, many of whom are master of arts. He's someone who leans towards Episcopalianism or kind of a high Presbyterianism, if you will, trying to lead people who are – some of whom are congregationally inclined. He's got a hard job and uh, his home life isn't a lot better. I think he breaks his arm. He gets given this great house to live in, but people have all moved into his house. <laughs> uh, but in a time when it was absent, people started taking over parts of the house and uh, families would occupy different rooms and then wouldn't give them the keys to those rooms. And so so nothing new about squatting. Nothing you, new about squatting. Yeah, we read about no. that in the paper, but you don't think no, that this squ- happens in the 17th squatters century. Squatters par excellence. So part of what you're saying is that the men who drafted these documents are real human beings who have real human lives in a really complicated situation. Yes. So living during the Civil War is always hard. Many of these people are displaced. When you say Oxonians are trying to lead scholars from Cambridge, pastors and theologians from Cambridge, there's some tension between them and the king is lobbing shells at Oxford while all this is going on. So right. So the king occupies Oxford and insists that everyone invited to the assembly or called to the assembly must not attend on threat of punishment. Parliament says anyone invited to come to the assembly must attend upon threat of punishment. That's already awkward. So you have two competing claims to authority, parliament versus the king. King says don't go. Parliament says you must go. And so it's the parliamentarians, the roundheads who are lobbing shells at the royalists in Oxford while all of this is happening. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to demure from the lobbing shell. That's a minor part of the war compared to to musketry. But the dynamics are all there. Yeah. You've got a civil war between the king and the majority of his parliament, which is the rebel parliament. You have armies marching up and down the land, plundering houses, soldiers billeted and enforced on families, living at their expense, leaving all kinds of devastation. Disease, famine, all the things that that come with this kind of warfare. Eventually, food shortages start to come during the 1640s. Harvests are disrupted and so on. And an outbreak of immorality associated with all of this, wartime immorality? Well, I mean, for a moralist, their own decade is always the worst. And so it's hard to read the complaint literature of the time and discern what's really accurate. 
But we do know this. The existence of two rival governments doesn't make people twice as careful about what they print or (laughs) preach or do. So exactly. So you have pamphlets flooding the market, as it were, competing claims, competing arguments, ideologies. Yeah, yeah. So all kinds of weirdness that's, as it were, stuffed in the can in the 1630s. The lid comes off in the 1640s. Quakerism, Socinianism. Yeah, Socinianism, Quakerism comes a decade later. But you've got anti-Trinitarians. You have people who begin saying, well, if the Bible's as good as people are saying it is, why do we need people to explain it to us? So anti-clericalism, people who are against the ministry, a lot of self-appointed preachers, you know, man plus microphone equals called. We've never seen that before in the United no. States. Yeah. No, thankfully, it's not trickled over to the United States. It's uh, it's just a mere relic of British history. So you've got a lot of chaos. And then London's muddy streets become an ideal seedbed for complicated and sometimes problematic political ideas as well. And so both members of parliament and members of the assembly find themselves in a context that seems to have gone entirely awry. And actually, no one in the right minds in the 1640s would have thought that was a good thing, but it's really helpful for us today that this confession was written at a time where there weren't just one or two traditional or historic foes of orthodoxy that the assembly is targeting or being mindful of as they're writing. You've got a whole range of strangeness in what you could, uh, it's sloppy to say this, but British evangelicalism, if you will, of the 1640s is so off kilter that I don't think you see anything quite so radical until you get to the 1800s. I think for a lot of people, Scott, the confession has a feel of surprising contemporaneity People who have suffered from the worst side effects of American evangelicalism sometimes stumble across the Westminster Confession of Faith and say, oh, this actually addresses a lot of the odd things that I saw in my church. And well, one reason for that is because there are a lot of odd things happening in the 1640s in a way that there weren't to the same degree in the 1660s or 30s. So someone who has experience in American evangelicalism and all of its wonderful variety may well have experienced some of the very same things that were happening in the 1640s. Because in the United States, in the 19th century, we sort of replicated some of the chaos and some of the creativity and some of the weirdness that actually was occurring at the same time the assembly was meeting and writing. And while all this is happening, we're also working out a covenant theology. And there's a tremendous amount of literature being developed. And while this is happening at the same time, there's a new movement or a new development in a movement that at least dates to the early 17th century. And that is you have Baptists now, something like what we know as the modern Baptist movement is coalescing and they're beginning to articulate their faith and their understanding of redemptive history. You know, groups like the Baptists and uh, different sects comprise only a tiny, tiny fraction of the British populace, of the English populace in particular. At the same time, the response to them is loud, it's energetic, and it can give one the sense that there's more going on than there is. So even as I spoke about all that weirdness, still a tiny percentage of the population that's acting out, if you will. And yet it's so disturbing that the response is very loud. So the members of the assembly with others serve in some sense as a megaphone or an amplifier for what's truly going on. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul 
for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. As the assembly is meeting, it's obviously happening in the midst of a lot of other things. Yeah. yeah. Why is that so important to keep in mind when people are reading the standards? What happens to us or to the standards when we read them without having some sense of that background? Yes. So why is it important to know that there's a construction project going on up above where they're meeting, that there's a prison (laughs) just outside the one door, that there's a boys' school with, uh, you know, raucous young lads? And Parliament sending messengers and saying, do this for us now and send us an answer. We want it yesterday. And at at all costs, be quicker. (laughs) Um, Why is it helpful to know that there are sort of crazy people running around the abbey at night with axes, that there are wild dogs out in the hall? Why is that useful to know? Well, I suppose in part because all of our theology is embodied theology. It's produced by real people. And uh, I think we can be thankful that such a remarkable product comes out of such a chaotic context. I mean the immediate context, what I just referred to, and the national context. There's the 30 years war going on over on the continent. It's a dreadful time. And yet you have people who, while while pressed to work quickly... Which they didn't really do exactly. No, they they didn't. There are reasons for it, but no, they're not particularly quick. So people are being pressed to work quickly, and the government does not think theology is very important. And yet they're taking all this time to carefully work through the best articulation of one doctrine after another. And in God's providence, they do a great job. And there's a lot of consensus there. One of the things to which I point people is the Directory for Public Worship, on which they agreed, despite all their other disagreements and tensions, for example, the long and difficult argument about polity. Nevertheless, they were able to agree on worship and produce a directory, which still at least influences us to some degree, maybe not to the degree some of us would like, but still the directory reflects a real consensus. Yeah, yeah. The Directory for Worship, a text completed in the spring of 1645, it's kind of like a DIY liturgy. It has uh, instructions, you know, you could do this, then this, then this in the service. By the way, your prayers could sound like this. The idea is that uh, if you're offended by the idea of a liturgy, you can just use it as a list of suggestions, and it's kind of like a DIY order for service. Sort of rubrics, not yeah, not a fixed but, thing. But you could easily change the first few words of every prayer sure. and turn it into a prayer you could read. But they also give principles. They're sort of working out Absolutely. a set of principles that, yeah, that you yeah. see, for example, in Westminster Confession 21, they actually put flesh on those bones. Yeah, it's really a classic text in thinking through, for example, visiting the sick. What should we be focusing on? I think of my own pastoral ministry. When I visit the sick, I'm often praying for healing. I'm trying to bring comfort. The Westminster Assembly places a huge emphasis on trying to do spiritual good to the sick. Now, that was never off my radar, but it wasn't the center point of my radar as it is with them. 
Now, mind you, most people a pastor would visit in the 1640s would die. Exactly. So, so that does add a little urgency, whereas most people I visit in the hospital survive. Yeah. They, I mean, in the 17th century, if you had tuberculosis, you, you were not long for this world. And your chances of getting tuberculosis were really, really high. Unpleasantly high. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, the plague just keeps cycling through England till the 16, middle of the 1660s as well. So when Thomas Hobbes later said that life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, without the great Leviathan to control everything, he wasn't making up those categories. He was describing daily life in England in the period. Yeah, he's describing, you know, life prior to the 19th century, uh, mid-19th century, maybe late 19th century. Until we discovered antibiotics, really. Yeah. Yeah. So all that's true. And so the directory puts an emphasis on helping people live forever, given that they're not necessarily going to live very long in this life. Which is a way of saying that the Westminster Standards, by which we mean the Confession, the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism, these are evangelical or gospel documents in the best sense. That these men, as they gathered, were not simply debating arcane points— however it may seem to us, they were really working out a pastoral theology for people to whom they were trying to minister. Yeah, and so many examples of how that's the case could be mentioned. Their awareness of the needs of real people and real ministers are highlighted by the fact that most of these guys are pastoring while working five, six days a week for the assembly because Parliament was supposed to pay them for this work and usually didn't. And they're aware of the needs of pastors too, Scott, because they conduct about 5,000 examinations of candidates for the ministry and ministers. So next to the Jerusalem chamber where they debate is a little room called the Jericho Parlor, which is kind of like a, a processing center for examinees. And, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I'm writing a book on the Assembly's attempt to reform the pulpit ministry of England. I think it's called God. I should know. It's called God's Ambassadors. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. Tell us again the title. God's Ambassadors, the Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of the Pulpit in England. 1643 to 1653. The subtitle's in process. All right. And so that's something that you're writing that we'll look forward to. Yeah, the, the Lord willing, it should be out soon. It looks at the activity that the assembly actually spent the most time working on, which is examining ministers and tries to understand how they did it, what they're looking for. So you're going to do for that process what Robert Paul did for studying polity. Church government. Yeah. yeah. Church yeah. government. Very good. Uh, I, I suppose. Well, th uh, this is very exciting because, you know, we need to know, I think, more about what the daily life of the assembly was like in order to understand some of the language they chose to use or didn't choose to use. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I feel the pressure of time and I feel like we're running out of time here. What should a layman or a ruling elder know about the standards in order to use them well? I think if someone really wants to profit from the Westminster Standards, they need to read them, first of all, from front to back. There's got to be some kind of hardcore session in life where you say, I'm going to take an afternoon and I'm going to get the whole flow of this. It's a great way of getting the balance. And then, like any text, if you want to be a responsible reader of a text, you've got to read it more than once. You've got to live in it for a little while. Should we bring back memorizing the Shorter Catechism? What do you think of that? My children don't know what to think of. Well, they probably do know what to think of. We're, I'm bringing it back in our household. Well, good uh, for you. With, with, uh, with minimal protest. 
I think it's really great. It can be done. I know a family that's memorized the larger catechism. That's kind of the Navy SEALs of the Presbyterians, I think. I think it's useful because even if your child, and one of my children does not really understand everything yet, I think if your child learns or if your young person learns the shorter catechism, then what you've done is you've kind of wired the whole house. And at some point, there's going to be a connection. There's going to be electricity flowing. And then the whole system begins to light up, begins to make sense. Maybe, maybe that's not a great And there might be – no, that's good. And there might be some sparks. Right? You might, and, <laughs> we could run with this. That's right. No, I think that's good because you know, I'm very influenced by Dorothy Sayers, right? Parrot, pert, poet. So at a younger age, you memorize and you build the foundation. When children naturally like to do that, actually take delight in it remarkably. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then as they begin to mature, you know, they're emotionally immature. They begin into question and maybe they don't form the questions well, but they're thinking, yeah. they're analyzing. And then at a slightly later stage, they begin to see the beauty in what they've learned and begin to speak the language of the church yeah. Yeah. if we'll give it to them. Yeah. I mean, I remember a young guy being in his house and him saying to me, so what's the purpose of life? And it was at least a conversation started to say, yeah. well, I think it's about glorifying God and enjoying him. That led to a conversation. There you go. It was a start. It's a great start, right? So when the divines articulated that, they were articulating really important stuff, not rote stuff, but yeah. really life and death yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a beautiful thing. And so a ruling elder or a pastor, someone who wants to make the most of this, needs to read it and then needs to probably try and teach it. And I mentioned memorization. It doesn't have to be that. You can read a question and say, what's this mean? Let's talk about this. And then maybe work your way up to memorizing or the other way around. Memorize it, but definitely talking about what it means. And the shorter catechism was meant for mom and dad and it was meant for the kids and everyone. And the larger catechism really wasn't necessarily meant for everyone in the same way. So these documents have different functions, yeah. but they can all be read by virtually anyone who can read. And there's lovely books that offer illustrations that accompany these different questions uh, that, that to pull out scriptural evidence for them and make it a great teaching tool. If there was one thing that you wished people knew about the standards that they don't know, what would that one thing be? It's a great question, Scott. That would require some skill as a social demographer to know what people don't know. But what I want people to really know is that they present an understanding of the free grace of God, free to us, but at such a cost to Christ. And they do so with words chosen that are so deliberate and thoughtful that it's really worth understanding, not just the vague idea of salvation, but the details. I suppose what I'm saying is this. I think the standards give us remarkable food for doxology in the way in which they make important distinctions. You know, someone says, God save me, they're going to be thankful. If people know that God's salvation means that he's justified me, that he's adopted me, that he's sanctified me, they're going to be more thankful. If people know that justification is an umbrella term for God forgiving me and imputing to me the righteousness of Christ, they're going to be more thankful. And so the distinctions offered in the confession, if grasped, are not wasted. It's great material for doxology. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.